Welcome to I'm your host, TMT, and this is episode 29. I have with me a special guest, a friend of mine, Ronan. We've had many conversations one-on-one. It's been very interesting. I thought, uh, Ronan, if you were interested in coming on Ethereal Underground, it'd be nice to chat and introduce yourself to the listening audience and kind of get your take, just like the other guests I've had over the months that I've started this podcast, because everyone's perspective to me is very interesting. I don't think there's any right or wrong answer. I enjoy interviewing individuals from all walks of life. I find people are fascinating. There's a lot of good stories that are hidden. And sometimes people are just shy or they haven't had the platform to present such stories. And Ethereal Underground, I wanted a, a mixture of where I go solo. And then I have episodes where there's interviews. So, Ronan, like I asked other guests, if you could tell Ethereal Underground audience a little bit about you, whatever you feel comfortable with. You don't have to give away any details. It would give away your identity. But enough information to where we know maybe what generation are you? Uh, do you have any siblings? Where'd you grow up? That that give us, gives us some demographics as far as where you're coming from. And then what have you done uh, since, since high school? What your experiences are that led you up to where you are today? Maybe uh, what you do for, for an occupation, a living? what your interests are. And then we can get into, after that general introduction that you'll give us, then we can get into the meat and potatoes of the interview as far as your observations, where you think society is today, how it's changed from when you grew up, and then uh, other interesting aspects that you mentioned. I've got notes here that we'll bring up about a, a global trend of, of social behavior that I found was fascinating. And you have an excellent term. I think I'm going to start using that if you let me, with your permission. I'll, you probably have a trademark, but I'm going to see if you'll let me use that because I, I like how you define that. So with that being said, uh, Ronan, welcome to the show, Ethereal Underground. This is episode 29. How are you doing? And uh, introduce yourself to the audience. Well, thank you for having me on. Um... I am doing well. Um, I am, let's see if I can start at the beginning. So we're, we'll, we'll start with uh, what generation I am. Um, I am 39 years old. I'll be 40 in April. So I am technically a millennial. Um, I don't really identify with that. <laughs> I, I think of it as almost a dirty uh, characteristic, but uh, um I guess how I kind of look at where I fit into the millennial spectrum is I grew up playing outside all day. Um, you know, I didn't have, you know, these video games that they have today or endless amounts of stimulus and entertainment in your face at all times. I, uh, we, we went outside as kids and, uh, my grandparents, uh, they've, they raised me a great deal because my, my parents were really young when they had me. They were 20 years old. Um, and so they had to work. And 
So my cousins and I, I'm, I'm an only child. I should add that in there also. Um, I think part of that is because they had me so young. <laughs> uh, they both had to grow up quick and weren't ready to grow up quick. So I kind of, I, I truly grew up with my parents. Um, and we can get into that later. Um, but anyways, my grandparents, they had an old school bell that was from my grandpa's uh, family farm from when he was a kid. And when the bell rang, you knew that you needed to get home in a timely manner. Um, it either meant supper was ready or someone's parents were there to get them or it didn't really matter. You, you needed to hightail at home. And my cousins, even to this day, uh, I consider them like brothers. We're very close. We talk several times a week, you know, either on the phone or, you know, through text um, because I I do not live in, I, I originally grew up in Dayton, Ohio. Um, and Dayton's an interesting place, uh, especially since I left. I left when I was 11. Uh, my dad worked for one of the big multinational corporations uh, in the food industry that um, many people know about. Um, and it moved us to Nebraska. Um, but at any rate, um, my cousins and I were very like-minded, not necessarily with regards to the things that we talk about uh, on the Discord chats or the Zoom chats. But, uh, you know, as far as worldview, I think that we're, we're all very uh, much in, in sync, uh, aside from the younger cousins. They really did get caught up in the... In, in the trap, I think. And so they're, they're very much lean towards that, that liberal view and, uh, um, you know, not necessarily, uh, I wouldn't say that they have a spiritual connection, all of them, but some of them do. Um, I, I guess I shouldn't answer for them. Um, but it's not something that we would discuss. Um, I ask a, a, a couple questions just so that I can follow, follow you. The when you move from Ohio to Nebraska, your da dad either got a new job or a job transfer, whatever that was, mm -hmm. bringing you to Nebraska. Your grandparents, did they stay in Ohio? Yeah. Um, yep, they did. Uh, one set of grandparents did follow us out here uh, several years later. Uh, a good chunk of my family were General Motors employees. Um, both of my grandpas on both sides of the family, uh, they both retired from General Motors. Um, it's kind of an well, interesting do, story. Do any of you drive Fords? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, heck, I drive, I drive, I drive Toyotas. <laughs> uh, I, 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 some people dream of Lamborghinis. I dream of Land Cruise, Cruisers. So, um, but my grandparents, uh, my grandpas, they both retired from General Motors, and one of them was union. He worked in the tool crib, and it was a very cush job, made a lot of money, and also worked a lot of overtime. Uh, I think he went, I, I don't know exactly, but he went, I think, two years without a single day off. He would just, uh, you know, he, he would work all the overtime he could. So, uh um, uh, Ronan, are you saying that it's possible 
that your grandfather, with all of his overtime and working so much in the tool crib, you think he could single-handedly been responsible for bankrupting GM and they had to go to D.C. to get money? <laughs> you, you know, the, the joke was that, that people were getting paid 90 bucks an hour to put lug nuts on a vehicle. Um, you know, I don't know how true that is, um, but I know that, you know, this is back in the 90s uh, when my grandpa retired and he was making six figures you know, just as a, as a tool crib guy. Well, that explains um, it. Cause that means my auto mechanic must've worked for GM. Cause I think that's what he charges me to put a lug nut on my car. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, the funny thing about it, it's not so much funny as tragic. You know, you mentioned the bankruptcy is my other grandfather. He was a foreman. So that's very, very entry level management. And uh, he retired when he was, I think he was either 50 or 55. They were very conservative with their money, um, which I really don't know how he did it because he had five children and, uh, you know, they built a home uh, in this. I would I would guess it was the early 70s. And uh, it's, it's still to this day a very nice home by today's standards. And anyways, since he was entry level management, that put him in a different block of retirement. And when General Motors did go bankrupt he lost all of his benefits. Oh, so wow. he, he's, you know, 80 something years old uh, when this happened, maybe late seventies. Uh, and he had had a triple bypass at one point uh, in his retirement. And now all of a sudden a guy like that has to go shopping for insurance. Uh, meanwhile, my, my other grandpa who was a uh, union retired union, it didn't affect him one bit. So that, that bankruptcy, it was, it was a wild ride for a lot of people, both, yeah. uh, you know, that were still in the workforce and those that were out. Right. Right. Uh, you mentioned the other question I wanted to ask is the, the cousins in mm -hmm. Ohio that you're kind of, I'd say that you mentioned maybe you're kind of close to, and you maybe still keep in touch with some, are they similar in your age or were they like a lot older or? Young. No, uh, one is a year older, so uh, he's the oldest, and then I would be the next oldest, um, and then it just stems down from there. Everybody, uh, except for my parents, had multiple children. Uh, most had three children in that family. Okay. Um, and so, you know, my I would say that the 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 us oldest four are all very close. Uh, one uh, died. He died in a car wreck when he was 17 um and my youngest boy that's he's he's named after him um so you know that that as tragic as it is it actually brought us closer um you know after that because you know we were all kind of in our prime at that time yeah. uh i think that i was in high school maybe i i don't remember if i was in high school or if i had graduated uh i would say that i was in high school and so I was doing my own thing. Uh, we'd kind of grown apart and, uh, his death really, really brought us, uh, close again, you know, even though miles were between us. Um, because when, when, when your cousin died in a car accident at that, were you in Nebraska at that time? Yes. Yep. I, and yeah. Was, I remember. And was your cousin in Ohio when he died in yep. a car accident? Okay. Yep. So you had distance, but this, this event tragic as it was, it brought, it brought the rest of us back, you know, back to you. Okay. yeah, yeah. We really 
started focusing on keeping our relationships strong because we realized we were all, you know, kind of in the, you know, we were driving of driving age. So we were doing what young men do at that time, you know, mostly focusing on girls and, you know, other adventures and not so much family. And so that, that really, uh, was a lesson that we learned early, you know, that families first. Well, you were mentioning in Nebraska then as you graduate from high school, what happened with you at that point? Did you go to college or did you go what route? So I was a senior when 9-11 happened um, and I, I, I joined the military. Uh, like a lot of guys did. I, I really had always thought about the military. I was always a very adventurous person. I wasn't really a sports guy. I was more of a gearhead and raced dirt bikes and uh, skateboarded and things like that. I, I was less involved with organized sports. Um, but I noticed that a lot of uh, young men at that time uh, did the same thing we bought into the red, white, and blue, you know, uh, some cave people from Afghanistan struck a mighty blow to our country. And, you know, that bell rang for all of us and we all joined and it, it didn't matter if you were, you know, uh, a jock or a gearhead or, you know, the, the stoner out back of the school, uh, a lot of people joined. It was, it was pretty wild. Um, so I went that route. I joined, uh, the army and I knew enough about it. I, I had, I had given it some thought cause I knew I wasn't really college material. I just wasn't focused at that time. Um, it wasn't that I was dumb. It's, it's that I, uh, I just, I wanted an adventure. And, uh, so this kind of was a solution for me. Um, and so I had done enough looking into it that uh, I knew exactly what I wanted to do in, in the army. And so I did. And, and this is, you know, kind of at the dawn of Internet forums, really, um, you know, which have really evolved over time. And, and so I had gotten into these forums and talked with, you know, veterans of uh, uh, different special operations communities and whatnot and uh, knew that I wanted to go a certain route. And uh, I knew exactly what I needed to get put on my contract. And I went into the recruiter and said, I want this. Here's what I need. I've already talked with people from the unit. Uh, sign me up. And I got exactly what I asked for. Um, at that time, there was a big surge of people joining because of 9-11. And so I had to, I don't remember what they called it, uh, but it, it was reception, I think is what they called it, uh, where instead of going directly into basic training, which I went into the infantry. Um, so it's kind of all one infantry, basic training and infantry school is all one. It's called OSUT, one station unit training. And I had to wait at reception, which is just terrible. It's basically like a holding facility for new recruits down in Fort Benning, for over a month before a slot opened for me to roll into the next, uh, um, class. And so that, that kind of sucked, but, uh, 
I, you know, I got through it. And then from there, uh, I went straight into airborne school and, uh, got out of airborne school and joined my unit, which was, a um, a reconnaissance unit. So it's a pretty, uh, elite reconnaissance unit. Um, I don't really want to get into too much about it. Yeah. Um, but, uh, I, I got exactly what I wanted and the military was a great thing for me at the time. And, you know, even it, it is what ultimately opened my eyes to the way the world really works. <laughs> I kind of realized, uh, well, I'll, I'll back up a little bit before I, you know, my, my great awakening, we'll call it. But the, the thing that I needed the most out of the military was, you know, of course, discipline. Um, but it taught me about myself and maybe because I didn't have any brothers or sisters or maybe that I was never involved in organized sports. I really didn't know a lot about myself as far as my strengths and my weaknesses. And I knew that I was, I was average or slightly above average in intelligence. Uh, but, uh, what I figured out is that I needed to be all in on what I was doing or else I would fail. It didn't matter what it was. And, and to this day, it's still the same way where I need to be all in or I'm going to, uh, I'm not going to, I'm not going to go all the way with something. And so it was always sink or swim with me in the military. And, and once I found my stride, I, I really, uh, succeeded. Um, and, a good example was that is I was both active duty in the military and uh, a guardsman, uh, National Guard. So just, you know, a weekend warrior. And I was terrible at being a weekend warrior because you only have to go once a week. So, you know, the all the other or I'm sorry, once a month, uh, the rest of the time it's on you to stay in shape and do the right thing and. So I was always uh, uh, terrible at, at balancing that. Um, however, when we were when we were uh, at drill or on an AT, which is an active training, that's usually two weeks for us. It was always more. Um, I was a stud, and on deployments, I was I was a stud. But boy, if you don't keep me reined in, uh, I fall apart pretty quick. So I, I learned that about me, and I've been able to make the necessary changes uh, to, to hold myself together. Um, so you perform well with, when there was the structure. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. When I was with a team, I'm, I'm very much a product of my environment. If I'm around negative people or, uh, unmotivated people, I become, you know, angry and unmotivated, uh, where, or I can, you know, if I'm around some positive people, uh, I'm very positive. I've since learned to balance that out where, you know, once you kind of see what your flaws are, you, you, you can recognize it real quick. And I think that through my professional career since then, um, I like to think that I've been a motivator and, uh, I think people would vouch for that. I've, I've, I tend to be very good at, uh, um, engaging with people and becoming, you know, quickly becoming a leader and especially in thought and action. And, uh, that's also, that's always, that's not always a good thing, especially during, uh, the whole COVID lockdown thing. Uh, right. Right. That really bit me in the butt. Uh, 
it actually ended up leading to me getting terminated from a job I was at for 13 years. This is post-military now, uh, you know, where we're at in that discussion. Um, because Before, I didn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't bend to the knee. Yeah. And it, right. Um, you and I are very similar in our type or personality. We have a lot in common there. You, you had mentioned, cause that's an interesting story. You don't have to go into details as far as 13 years. Cause I know what happened, uh, why they let you go, but before you get into that, were you going to go back a little oh, about yeah. the military yeah. to turn in? Because you told me, what I'll do is I'll present this and you can say yes or no. You told me an ex experience of, I, and I can't remember if it was a colonel or something. <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, what you thought you were there for, and he goes, no, we're here for blank. Yeah, I'm comfortable. You want to say that, or would you, would you, are you yeah. comfortable? Okay, go ahead. Yeah, I'm, I'm comfortable with saying that. Um, we were over there doing uh, some counter narcotics operations um, and doing uh, some hunting down bomb makers as well. And at this point, my eyes had opened. I had heard stories. I had never seen it happen, but I'd heard stories about, uh, you know, opium and when we rolled in opium production went through the roof and i had seen enough over there indirectly and through talk that that was a real thing that you know maybe uh we were part of that and so it kind of got my my wheels turning and i i asked um, my commander who was a full bird colonel in this particular uh unit that i was in um and i i asked him you know hey uh what are we doing here? And uh, he goes, you don't know. And I said, it, it, the drugs. And he goes, ah, that's part of it. That's how, uh, you know, we paid for this operation. But uh, he said, it's the lithium dude. And then he just laughed and walked away. And I had no idea what he was talking about. This is Afghanistan. Yeah. Um, I'd, I've only deployed to Afghanistan, never to Iraq. Um, and years later, there was some, you know, it was big news that uh, Afghanistan's sitting on a massive, uh, you know, reserve of lithium. Um, and, you know, who knows, maybe it's like uh, oil, you know, when we went into Iraq, it, it didn't matter who had it, as long as it was flooding the market and keeping the costs down. You know, things like that, petroleum, and I would imagine lithium mining, it's a very limited hangout on who gets these contracts. Um, you know, I don't know how many players there are in that arena, but it's got to be small. So right. I'm sure there's a good old boy system. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, that that was my great awakening is, all right, you know, I guess I uh, I guess the whole patriotism thing, it was just <laughs> it was the the way to get the uh, the ducks in a row to to perform the task that they needed done. And but, uh, Ronan, do you, do you think that. Do you think that your role there and the arrangements you, you explain, I don't know if you will in this interview or not, but to me, you explain how those contracts work, uh, how the, the lithium mining contract works. But do you look back today and uh, take a certain measure of pride because you're able to serve a role 
that secured lithium for battery production, it eventually went into Tesla cars so that Tesla <laughs> owners can virtual signal wearing their masks, their two masks on, and 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 say that they're clean environment as they're going to the voting booth. <laughs> you know, I never thought of it that way, but yeah, I, I guess so. I I always I kind of thought about it, and I really don't know who told me this, but you know, I kind of told them my story and. They they made a good point that the that that route I went through the military and just so happened that I was a senior when nine eleven happened. There was a lot of things that pushed me to go in that direction, and it's kind of what I needed to you know pull my head out of my butt and also to see the world for what it really is. It it really you know allowed me to see through the veneer and. Uh, you know, since then, it's been an evolution, you know, of uh, understanding, you know, that we live in a matrix, you know, I mean, you've said it before, it's true. So I think I needed to go through those experiences, uh, not only for the memories and the friends that I made, but uh, to get me to where I'm at today. It's, it's kind of that butterfly effect, I guess, as funny as that sounds. Yeah, because you have, you have a maturity level. You're not naive. You see where a lot of people are in a kind of a trance hypnotic state chasing plastic and leather. You're nowhere close to that because you look at world events and the economy and social behavior. And, you, and you're very wise as to what's going on in the, in the background. And Yeah, I didn't used to be like that, though. Uh <laughs> That was a whole nother evolution in itself. I, I've had several small businesses and still do. And uh, there was a, a, a significant portion of my professional career where I was 100% chasing uh, plastic and leather. I wanted the cars and the status and the money. And um, I, I just didn't feel right. I, I don't know how to, 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 uh, you know, really put it any better than that, but I wasn't feeling myself. And I mean, it wasn't depression. Um, but I was never happy. I would only have little spats of joy and they, and then they were gone. Even with my children as as terrible as that sounds, I was in a real weird mental state, uh, at the time. And, uh, I, I, I talked to people about it. I mean, you know, I, my wife thought maybe, you know, PTSD is a bad word, you know, <laughs> nobody wants, to, nobody wants to hear that. But she asked if maybe I thought it was something to do with that, you know, that I wasn't sleeping well. And I said, maybe, you know, maybe I do need to talk to somebody. And I kept getting told the same answer. It's because you're getting older um, and you have kids, of course, you're always going to be tired and not feeling like doing anything. And I, I kept telling them, it's not that it's not that I'm tired. It's somebody could come to my house and say, let's go do this. And it could be my favorite thing in the world. And I would just kind of be like, all right, I guess since you're here, yeah, let's, let's go. And I thought, I didn't know what it was. I thought maybe it was my thyroid. I mean, I went through all of these, you know, thoughts that it was my health, but really it was that I was unhappy with how I was living my life. Um, 
I didn't like working inside. I didn't like working for the company that I worked for. Um, and I was never able to break away entirely to do uh, my full-time side hustles. Um, I was always a slave to the paycheck um, and the benefits and, you know, all the stuff, the, the plastic and leather. And uh, finally, I just you know, I had a conversation with my wife and I said, you know, I, I can't keep doing this. I'm, I'm not happy. And it's not you. It's not the kids. Uh, I have a great family, a, a, an amazing wife, and I have very good kids. Uh, it's, it's the life. And I said, something's got to change. And it was really weird. Um, I met this guy. Um, I'll just refer to him as his first name because he's a very private individual. Um, his name's Jim and, uh, he's a farmer. Um, he's a pasture, um, raised beef guy. Uh, he lives, you know, maybe 30 minutes away from me, 25 minutes away from me. And we'd met because we were both into the same stuff. We were both into <laughs> conspiracy theories is, is a, is a, a phrase, but of course I think they're conspiracy facts. And a, a mutual friend put us into contact in, in contact with one another. And he's much older than me. Uh, he wouldn't want to hear me say that, but he's, he's uh, going to be 70 here real soon. And uh, we hit it off really well. We, we, you know, we could have really deep conversations with one another. And, uh, you know, you of all people know that it's a, it's a lonely road when you veer off the path. Uh, it's, it, it can be, it can be incredibly, uh, depressing, you know, seeing the world for what it really is and trying to tell people, I used to try to tell people, you know, what was going on and I just got tired of it. Um, and you know, sometimes I'll speak my mind on that, but most of the time I just keep to the, keep to the back of the room, but meeting Jim really changed my life as well. Uh, he's one of the most well-read people I know. Uh, the guy has what I would consider a library. Um, and, uh, he knew that I hated my job. I was, uh, a mechanic, um, at a, a, a bio, uh, kind of a bio refinery. <laughs> it was nothing that I ever wanted to do, but it paid the bills, it paid very well. And, uh, he would, he kind of, slowly started nudging me over the course of several years because I'm pretty dense on uh hey you should get into farming and I thought how am I going to get into farming I have I live on five acres um I ended up this is a little bit of a backstory but I ended up buying uh when I said one of my grandparents later followed us out here uh my my father owned he bought an acreage and he split off five acres. It's actually almost six acres uh, for his mother and father to, to come out here. Uh, my dad, uh, he was, uh, he, it was him and his brother uh, were their only children. And his brother died when my dad was 13 and I'm named after him. And so they didn't have any kids left back in uh, Ohio. And I was very close with them. Um, and so they moved out here, and in 08, 09, uh, my grandpa passed away. It was in 09, and 
I, I believe that it was the stress of the stock market crash. He lost most of his wealth um, in a panic sell. Um, he sold a lot of money. I would say that he lost well over a million dollars, which was a lot of money at the time and for someone of his era. Um, and I think that that ultimately he, he died of a heart attack. Um, but anyways, I, I bought their house. Um, and the condition was, you know, I bought it for market value. My grandma needed money. So there was no sweetheart deal. The sweetheart deal was, she said that she would live there. And, and I, you know, I pitched the idea. She could live there as long as she wants. I would finish the basement. And, uh, my wife and I, we would live down there. And, uh, you know, then she, the, the goal was eventually she would move up with my parents. And I finished this basement on this house and I put a full kitchen down there. I mean, I, it's very nice. It's nicer than my upstairs. And I poured this big patio and no sooner was the concrete dry. She said, well, I'm moving up with your parents, you know, see you later. And she was pay, she was going to, that was part of the deal. She was going to pay me a little bit of, uh, you know, chip in for utilities and stuff. And so it was very doable. Um, it was, it was a doable thing at my age that I was 30 years old, I think at the time. And, uh, I'm like, crap, granny, I, I would have put a wet bar in the basement instead of a full kitchen, you know, <laughs> thanks for the heads up. But, uh, anyways, long story short, I have six, you know, almost six acres and I'm, I'm talking to Jim how am I going to get into farming on only six acres? That, that, I don't think that I can make that worthwhile. And uh, that's when he kind of got me going down the regenerative farming route where, uh, you know, with pastured poultry, so chickens. And, you know, so I said, all right, well, I don't really know anything about it. And uh, he, he says, well, I'll teach you. And he, he put me in, uh, you know, he introduced me to some characters out there. Joel Saladin is one. He's kind of the American guru of, uh, um, you know, I would call it uh, sustainable agriculture. There's many names for it. Regenerative farming. It's kind of marketing terms, but it's actually real. Uh, it's where you're putting more into the soil than what you're taking out. And so that kind of opened up my eyes. And, and you, you, mean, you, uh, you mean different than Monsanto's Roundup? <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. 100%. Uh, um, sorry, sorry for all the jokes. People are like, he's being serious. And you're, you no, no, with these no corny it, jokes. I can't help it. I'm sorry. I have, I was, no, hit, it helps because otherwise I'll, head, just, it, I'll, I'll ramble. <laughs> yeah. I had a head injury as a kid. And uh, a result of that is corny jokes, unfortunately. <laughs> so the, this so, regenerative farming. Yep. So he, he says you can do chickens and I, I didn't really know if you could, but turns out you can you can do uh about 500 chickens on one acre of land a year and well you know i've got three acres of pasture uh that i can work with um and so it was a very doable thing for me um and you know this is i'm still in the infancy of this operation um i'm by no means have i made it as a farmer but I'm making enough money doing it where once I did get terminated from my, uh, 
my job uh, due to the, the whole COVID uh, regulations. Um, now I'm a farmer, I guess. Um, it's kind of weird to say because I remember when I moved out to Nebraska my, or and even, you know, after I'd been out here for years, I would go back to Ohio and talk with friends and family back there and they'd just laugh and ask me, are you going to be a farmer someday? And, you know, I'd say, hell no, I don't want anything to do with that. And uh, here I am. It, it is kind of what I'm doing. But the difference is, and, and it, this is another example of a lonely road, right? So I live in Nebraska. It is a farming powerhouse, but it's a commodity-based farming. They're selling commodity, soy and corn. There's very few that are selling nutrition. And, you know, G Jim is the one that really opened my eyes to that. You know, what, what do you mean nutrition? You know, I can go to the store and get a steak. Well, yeah, that's a, you, you know, you, you kind of are what you eat to include what your food eats. Well, a lot of these factory raised uh, cattle or chicken, um, you know, as I've learned more, it's, it's a, it's a dirty game there. You know, you think, when you think of banking and uh, pharmaceuticals and all of that about how they play their games, well, big ag and, and big food, it is just as dirty. Uh, a good example of that is uh, if you buy chicken, I know mostly about chicken because that's my, my end, of the, end of the operation. Um, if you buy chicken at the store and it says non-GMO or... Um, no hormones or, you know, it's never been, uh, vaccinated. Um, that's likely not true within 24 to 48 hours, the, uh, parts per million that they test for in the blood, all of that stuff is out of the chicken. So they can pump that chicken full of hormones and antibiotics up until two days prior before it goes to process. And at a USDA facility, if they pull a random sample and sample it, it will test clean for uh, no antibiotics. And that's a dirty secret of the food industry that most people don't know. And there is loads of them right down to organic. You know, what does organic mean? Right. Um, it's, it's the same thing. Yeah. I did a lot of, I, I don't, I, I don't think I told you this. I did a lot of, research with the poultry industry in the university of arkansas i didn't know that years with with my uh my technology the air and surface technology and the the large oh, chicken yeah. houses and we're able to knock out the ammonia and then the uh, able to have less uh, infections with the chickens a greater weight gain without having mm -hmm. to use uh growth hormones or antibiotics. And we had phenomenal test results in one of the largest processing plants in the world in Indonesia and the very modern facility. It's interesting, it was a composite investment group from Poland and the facilities in Indonesia. The technology I developed is throughout that um, chicken facility. And yeah, they have a greater weight gain and less infections and disease with the operation, but the the U.S. market, no need to mention names, 
to make this point because <laughs> mm-hmm. it was all of them. I was all over the country. They uh, just didn't want to spend the money, e- even if it were two to three cents per chicken. They're right. like, nope, not going to do it. So it's it's interesting how the large corporate food industry works in the United States. And I'll just be friendly and polite and leave it at that. <laughs> yeah, I, I've come to realize it's it's a lot like, you know, we kind of learned that pharmaceuticals and the medical world was very institutionalized over the past few years. Well, in my, you know, schooling is, you know, being a, a farmer now, uh, agriculture is the same. It's very institutionalized through universities. And this is how dad did it. Um, a lot of these operations in my area, um, I, there's no way I can talk to row crop people. Um, you know, I, I tend to just bite my tongue and ask, what are the beans looking like this year when they harvested? I was curious due to the drought, massive drought this year, right. how, uh, how beans were in our area. And it, it, it was about half uh, a yield of what, what we've gotten over the past three to five years. Um, which, you know, that's, that's total weight. I don't know how much oil is in these beans. So I really don't know what, you know, the, the commodity side is going to look like, but, uh, you know, usually you can get, um, if I, if I recall beans is usually like 70 bushels an acre, um, you know, 68 to 70 and they were pulling like 35 this year, uh, in my area. And, uh, do do you want me to, do you want me to freak out you in the audience or should I keep my mouth shut? I always freak people out on my shows, as you know. Ah, I, would, I would say stick to tradition and freak us out. Yeah. Why change now, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I did. It's funny that you mentioned that. I, I did some soil sampling within the last two weeks. And I was at 36-inch depth. Now, I'm not too far from you, uh, east of Nebraska. But the uh, the analysis, when you talked about the drought-like conditions, which have hit your area, my area, mm-hmm. to make a long story short on the soil sampling, what happens is in, in my area, the plants, the vegetations and the gardens and crops, they were sustained by rains from three years ago. That's a a bad sign. So there's a lot of clay content Mm -hmm. in this and there's, there's a formulation. I specialized in soils in the, one of the three specializations of my schooling, but the, the complicated root system, they, they were being sustained, but the depth and the moisture of the clay content, they were drawing up the last remnants of moisture that was three years old. How does that translate? It translates that uh, food production is going to decrease shortages of food. You have food shortages, famine, some rough times 
are ahead and it'll manifest itself. It's starting to now, but 2023, 2024, even in, in the United States, you're going to have three options. You're going to have enough money to eat in a particular week or heat and cool your home that week or pay for health insurance or fuel. You won't be able to do all three. So that's, I'll leave it at that as far as the good news. There's going to be a reality awakening as never seen before, especially from the artificial unrealistic conditions that this country has had for so many decades. The lifestyle and the reality uh, is going to change in a very drastic, stark manner. And I suspect a lot of people won't be able to handle it. The, the true reality of what's coming. And I wouldn't be surprised if you'll see suicide rates going through the oh, roof. Yeah. And, and it'll yeah. be, in fact, there'll be family suicides as a, as a suicide pack because of not being able to pay the expenses, not being able to have enough resources to last 30 days, one month at a time. And the stress will be overwhelming and they off themselves. But I, I don't want to get off on that tangent. Um, think, of, think of the insurance underwriters on some of that. You know, I mean, I know suicide isn't often covered, but sometimes it is. I've, I've known, you know, just, like where I am. Yeah. Uh, it's covered if the policy is over two years. So oh, okay. you could have a life insurance policy for two years and one month and then just uh -huh. uh, hang yourself in the backyard or whatever. And then it's it's covered. So there is a depending Jeez. state by state. Yeah, that worth. <laughs> and then that, that's not to mention you briefly touched on it, but you you're lo you lost the, the job at that. Mm hmm bio facility yep. because you refuse like myself you refuse to take the injection and sub subsequent boosters and it, it cost you your job but i'd mentioned over three years ago january of 2020 in detail i described the last three years and so it's archived it's on record and uh we're, we're having massive early deaths between uh, the demographics of the 20, 30, and 40-year-old, 40-year-olds with a absolute tremendous increase that insurance companies did not anticipate. It's not matching any of the 200, 300, four-year-old statistical models. So when you have all these, un, what they're calling unknown, unusual deaths or adult death syndrome, this is going to bankrupt insurance companies unless the insurance companies get involved, which there's chatter in the background because I have connections to the insurance industry that uh, I wouldn't be surprised if they're saying, if you had these pharmaceutical injections, your policy life insurance is null and void. They're not going to pay these life claims that's mm -hmm. coming. Yeah, I can, I can totally see that. But I didn't want well, to sidetrack. The, you were talking about the, the, the bushels of uh, beans, 70 bushels usually around there for an acre, and it's half, 35, the drought-like yeah. conditions. Did, did I throw you off track? Can you pick up? No, no, you actually 
you kind of brought up another good point. There's there's many good benefits to uh, be partnering with someone who has decades more experience than you, uh, like I did um, with the farming. Yeah. And one thing my 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 partner had mentioned, and time will tell, is due to this drought, <clears throat> there's a lot of cracks in the dirt. You know, these cracks go down below the frost line. And when we start getting moisture, like we are right now here where I'm at, it was raining today. Water is going to get down into those cracks and it's going to freeze and it's going to wreak havoc on underground piping, uh, electrical lines and everything of that nature. He's seen that in the past. And so I used to give, uh, give him a lot of, uh, of crap asking, you know, why, why don't you have more cattle than you do? You know, you've got, you know, 200 acres of very, very nice pasture. Yeah. Why don't you have more cattle? And he, he would always say, because drought, you got to be prepared for drought. And here we had it this year. I, I'm, I know my place now. Just don't ever question. <laughs> Let experience take over because yeah. we, we didn't really have to have, uh, we didn't have to turn out any hay early on our pastures uh we're only now getting into our winter rations of of uh of hay which we produce our own hay um we bale it um you know you basically just section off an area of, of a pasture and let it grow and then you bale it and put it up for the winter and and so we are fine as far as our winter rations but these grain fed guys um and corn fed guys the traditional uh, factory farming beef guys, they've been going at it with their hay rations for months now. And it's going to be an interesting, uh, winter, I think, uh, just for that purpose alone. I mean, there's, there's many other factors, of course, but, uh, once, once hay or grain is gone, it is gone. You know, there's, you're not getting any more this year. Uh, and if you do, the price is going to go through the roof. So, Right. It is going to be interesting to see what beef prices do. Um, one caveat to kind of what we're doing is because of COVID, uh, we chose not to put a, a, a bull in pasture uh, last year. Um, you know, all of the processing places were backed up. It was a very conservative move. You had to make a decision and it was the best decision at the time. Um it's frustrating to not have beef right now um, to go to market, but uh, the farm is paid for. There's there's no overhead, um, so we we had to make a decision. So we don't have beef this year. We won't have beef until you know roughly this time next year, because um, we chose to to do without a bull in pasture. Um, so we've we've got plenty of calves out in the field now and. Uh, everything's going great, but we, we, it did delay us. There was a delay for a year. Right. And I'm, I'm going to be interested to see how that pans out too, because I know we're not the only ones to do that. Um, it'll be interesting to see once a lot of these big meat lockers and everything really start bottoming out their supplies to see where, where prices go. You know, I'm not a big enough player to really know the commodity side of beef. You know, we, we don't sell, wholesale we sell you know bulk which is business to consumer um, um 
So I'm not a big enough player to really have a, a good take, but it is something to watch for. Um, if, if I weren't me, I would be putting away a lot of beef or I'd be buying pork if you eat pork because it's on a fire sale right now uh, and putting that up for, you know, uh, your, your rations for the winter and next year. Uh, cause it's going to get weird, you know, right along with, you know, all of your angles, amongst yeah. the, uh, the market disruptions. I mean, you know, the, the, the things that people can wrap their mind around, you know, Joe six pack can understand the major market disruptions that have already occurred and, and, you know, the ripple effect and can slightly wrap his mind around the, the effects that we haven't felt yet. Um, compound gonna, that with the things you talk about, it's going to be yeah. a bumpy ride. I was going to say, you, you reminded me the, uh, you might, depending on your age, it's, it's borderline, but, uh, those are a lo- little bit older because I'm the, uh, MTV generation. They, uh, there's a series Wendy's fast food restaurant mm-hmm. in uh, 1984 they had clara peller little old lady and it was, it was what today the term would be viral but she had those wendy commercials where's the beef yeah you know, i remember I, I remember you know where's that? the beef yeah it's yeah, truly I, gonna be where's the beef <laughs> right and when you said that that's that's the case but i but i guess the the bill gates and the klaus schwab world economic forum types will be happy because they want to reduce beef consumption i think the uh whoever supposedly in the east coast in the washington dc area had said it'll be luxury if you have beef once a Mm -hmm. month yeah well i guess Uh, between the shortage of of beef that's going to happen and then uh they want to push everyone towards the insects and crickets to eat that (laughs) well shoot a a marketing campaign way back in the day was a chicken in every pot you know, and, and that might even be a stretch if people don't, uh, learn to maybe do it themselves. And it's not complicated to, to, to do it yourself, at least with chicken beef is a whole nother ball game because it does require some real estate. Uh, chicken does not. Um, and my operation, uh, next year gets moved out to the big farm and okay. how that, how, so that's a, that's kind of a symbiotic relationship. So the chicken, you run them in chicken tractors, which is basically a floorless cage. And that's to protect them from predators. Right. Um, and you move it daily. So they're on you, fresh grass every day. Yeah. You showed um, me pictures you, of that. It's this giant cage. Yeah. Yeah. Protected and, from predators, but it, mm-hmm. it's, didn't it have yep. wheels or something where you're able to lift one end and drag it to another? Yeah. They're kind of on a skid. Track. Um, skid, like a tractor to use a tractor yep, yep yep they're on skids so you can have big ones if you've got real flat land so we're going to have some some big ones that will hold you know upwards of 500 chickens or more uh and then we have small ones that hold you know right around 100 for the hillier areas they're a lower profile so we get we get wind in nebraska yeah so you that's do. a that's a consideration um, and yeah, you, you, with the little ones, you can move by hand or with a four wheeler, the big ones you move with a, with a tractor. And what you do is you, you rotate them, you know, two to three, two plus days behind the cattle. 
um, and they will spread the cattle manure for you. They'll pick out the, the, the larva from the manure and uh, that controls your fly population. And then in the meantime, they're laying down nitrogen. Chicken, chicken poop is, ama- is an amazing source of nitrogen. Right. Uh, and so your, your, uh, your pasture is getting supercharged naturally. Um, and I, I saw that on my own pasture. Um, so I kind of did some experiments where I would, you know, go over to the same area twice just to see if I could get away with it. If it was too much nitrogen, um, in my area, I can, because we have a long winter. It's, it gives it enough rest time. Um, but in a place that has a little milder winter, you probably would only want to go over the same area once a year. Um, but it, it really depends on the ground too, the type of grass and everything. And that's um, the, that's the regenerative part where you're putting yeah, yes, more nutrients exactly. than you're right. out, yep. which is the key. Yep. So that, that's kind of my, so now that's what I do. Uh, I'm an independent contractor and I, I just got on with a, uh, another facility uh, where it's mainly working remote, where I'm basically writing procedures of how to do the maintenance tasks I used to do. So I can kind of do that over the winter. And it's kind of cool because the, the engineering firm that hired me, he's also a farmer and, uh, he left, uh, a big multinational corporation that's in our area that everybody would know of, uh, because it was affecting his farming game. <laughs> so he started an engineering firm as his side hustle yeah. and it's turned out to be very lucrative. And, uh, it was, you know, through mutual, uh, uh, friends that we got in touch. And so now I'm kind of on contract over the winter to write some SOPs and maintenance procedures, uh, for this facility. And the pay is great. Uh, it's a 1099 deal. So, I mean, I'll have to pay taxes on my own and no benefits, but I'm fine with that. Uh, and, uh, then come spring, I'm taking the, uh, the poultry operation to the moon we'll see how see where it goes from there uh because well, i was wondering if, big farm so yeah if you have that that gig the part-time gig with helping with the engineering protocol and and then in the spring is it jim's property where you'll yeah. be using more then yep. uh, I, I was curious is that is that fancy basement fixed up is that available where I can move in, in the... <laughs> you know another uh another got its guy, own kitchen and everything i thought hey that might work i but another guy that you met at the retreat yes. uh he's actually moving on to my property uh but he's fixing into... up he said he's fixing up the barn and kind of a uh yeah yeah he's a... taking my my pole barn and turning it into uh house you know a shouse, yeah. It's cap shop he's doing ex- he's doing exactly what i would love to do with my stuff but well, I thought if, uh, if, if if we go out there, either the three amigos, but we could call it like oh, yeah. Watch Farms. Yep, yep, yep. There's there's, there's plenty of room. Community yeah. is key. Community is key. Yeah, that, I keep emphasizing yeah. that because we're going to have the dynamics are permanently going to change for the listening audience in the United States. It, it will never. I'll use a common expression: going back to normal makes you wonder well, what was normal 70s 80s 90s normal but uh, we will never go back to that and what we're seeing is the 
middle class by design globally, but the middle class will never exist again. It will never come back the way the system engineers are structuring everything. And you'll, you'll have easily two to three families living under one roof. It'll take two to three families pooling their resources. Yeah. Related or maybe cousins or real good friends, but two to three families in a compound, probably not near as nice, as fancy as yours, but even if it's in suburbia, three families living together, basement, oh, yeah. main floor upstairs, they're pulling resources to pay for heating and cooling to get uh, that one chicken in the soup scenario. Yep. And and the, the, the privilege of having your privacy of a single home where you have the master bedroom and the kids are at the other wing of the house, those days are going to be over. <laughs> the, and you're yeah. going to have, there's, that's, that's where it's headed. And that's, that's what the central bankers and the uh, Davos Bilderberger type crowd, that's, that's what they want. And then uh, they're going to be very restrictive on social credit scores and all these monitoring where they're going to monitor your caloric intake and what your so-called carbon footprint is. And where they have technology now to be completely totalitarian with this technocracy. And then we have the vast majority of the population. The reason why it's not looking good, and I have little hope as far as a human solution to this, is because most people are passive. Uh -huh. yep. And that's yep. but we, what happened is we're, we're at, at the hour mark, believe it or not. And we didn't get into your passive activism that well, you turned it we, we that, that I like. Do you, we'll have to have you back because I'm going to have uh, you know, Crypto Cowboy and Bitmat mm -hmm. and, and the others back for a, and you'll also be included in that group. Well, I think we can leave a good cliffhanger there because there'll be more action on my end. So, you know, part of the me not being a passive activist is taking action and that's why Heinz as you know him uh is moving you know to my property because you know he's one of my best friends and I, I trust him and we're going to start a community because I think that's how you get through this that's the and, only way you get through this is the community yeah you've got your age and health you're both younger than me and you have strength you're you're both in good shape but the uh, the community, and then uh, you're aware of my technologies, uh, which mm -hmm. will help. And I just, I focused on the air surface sanitization and the water because I knew we were going to be going backwards in society, and, and that these would be key technologies for survival. And I really wanted to focus on uh, these technologies for homestead communities. I was never really interested in the big city, the urban areas, mm -hmm. uh, the what, what is that called? Think tank? Yeah. Is that the, the I don't, I haven't had TV in many, many decades. No, Shark Tank. Oh, Shark Tank. Yeah, yeah. Shark Tank. I, I know what you're saying. Shark, so I, I never meant to like Shark Tank and or something to be on uh, QBC per se. I always realized, no, this will be uh, community homesteads that would be interested in my technology and it would never be a major market in a retail store or a major internet outlet but we'll, have, we'll definitely have part two but do you want to give a definite how would you define 
since it's your terminology, how would you define passive activism and, and why, why that's a huge problem? You're not that way. I'm not that way. Heinz and others. But so many people are. That's why this tyranny is going with no roadblocks, no resistance for the most part. How would you define passive activism? I think that it's deeply programmed into us nowadays that uh, help is coming. Someone is coming to save you. Uh, right down to 911. 911 is outsourcing your personal safety. And if you have to dial 911, the fox is already in the hen house. So yeah, either somebody, right. somebody is either hurt and maybe bleeding out and you need to take action or somebody means to hurt you and get you to bleed out. So you need to take action. And so I think that people have been conditioned to sit on their heels and wait for someone to come save them. And that's not the way the world really works. And I got to see that firsthand. Uh, you know, overseas, I, you know, there were some very terrible things that you, you see in third world countries. There's also some very beautiful things that you see, but I mean, I, I saw, you know, a 13 year old girl get stoned to death because she was raped and that brought shame to her family. And there was nothing I could do. I had to just stand there and, uh, wow. You know, that, that's kind of a poor example, but my, my point is, is the world's a hard place and you need to take responsibility uh, for yourself. And, you know, Marvel movies and, uh, you know, every, everything is conditioning us that they're heroes on the way, but in this life, you're the hero. And you know, people need to act as such. Um, there are no real heroes anymore you know, to look up to, it doesn't seem, or they don't get any airtime and everybody needs to look at themselves as the hero and not just sit on their heels and do nothing. You know, QAnon, all, all of these things yep. uh, are just teaching people to, to sit back and relax while the world continues to go to hell. And yeah, I just, so I don't, I don't want to be a part of it anymore. I want to no. break away. Yeah, you're right. Because of the, the mindset, the psychology is the system engineers, those that control this reality, and they they really manifest a hatred for humanity and they want to reduce the population. And they have technologies now that they've rolled out for that, but they've psychologically conditioned people to stand down, to use a military term, stand down, come up with these subreddits that there's a group white hats is another terminology there's always some group that's working behind the scenes and there's, there's secret arrests and secret indictments mm -hmm. and there's aircraft yeah. criss crisscrossing everywhere going to guantanamo bay and then there's lookalikes or clones that and uh it's everything's going to work out just hang tight everything in the background when it's a psyop because death is coming imprisonment and death is coming and you're, you meaning the people that suffer from passive activism will never do anything on their own to prepare for this. And they're always looking at a 
political leader, whether it be like a Donald Trump type or an Elon Musk, some type of dynamic. Ooh, a red, a red uh, wave is coming. A red wave, yeah. And uh, just hang tight. It's any minute now. Next month, right. you'll see. And uh, that month yeah. goes by. Well, in the spring, definitely in the spring. And then it goes by. Well, by summer, it's, it's this right. phantom, this phantom cavalry and night as shining the, armor. As the noose tightens. <laughs> right. So, and, and then. Yeah, that's where. So you and I are not that way. Uh, I think that's. I would estimate probably three, at most, maybe five percent of the population are actually preparing and developing strategies. I, I, I wouldn't be surprised that ninety-five percent aren't doing anything and think that oh, it's not that bad. And and if you claim it's that bad, you're chicken little. Oh, there we go. Chicken, <laughs> chicken little that the sky's falling. Right. But uh, nope. No, I, th I think what happens is the 95% are uh, sorely mistaken. Their, their lack of action is going to be a death sentence, unfortunately. Great tragedy is coming. And I think the three to 5% will stand a better chance. But even that, it's, uh, I'm afraid it's as much as you and I can be prepared, it's still going to be uh, a rough way to go. Oh, it's going to be hell. Yeah. yeah. And, and uh, I, I admit it, admit growing up, going to school in the seventies and high school in the eighties that uh, I'm soft. I was never raised. I grew up in suburbs, St. Louis, but I, I I wasn't taught how to can and how to skin a, a deer. I knew a little bit about skinning a fish, but the general life skills, completely gone, never taught in school. My parents uh, didn't exercise those skills. So I, I am at a great disadvantage because I was a, a suburban kid. So I've always had electricity when I flipped the light switch on, always had hot water. There was always a grocery store down the street. Uh, market 7-Eleven type for candy and ice cream. And then uh, there was always an auto parts store nearby and I just zipped down to get the parts. So I've had this convenience and comfort for, for decades. And, and when that rug gets pulled out from under me, the shock is going to be phenomenal for me, even though I know this is coming and I've been preparing full-time and the summer, August of 2007 is when I started, when I knew that this financial crisis was coming. And um, I, 2007, I realized the storm clouds that were coming and I knew they were going to paper over the crisis, never solve anything, which means there'd be a second wave like 20 years later. Exactly. Just like it's happening now. So in 2007, I realized, okay, downsize, immediately downsize, red alert, get out of debt, uh, you know, pay off all student loans no mortgages. And it took me eight, 18 years, 17 years, somewhere around there, 17 years to downsize, get completely out of debt, and then start the strategy of prepping to certain, not, not to the extent where I have like a bunker and a cache of guns and all that. There are people really serious. I'm not that serious, but definitely serious, more serious than the neighbors and the community by far. You know, you always want to have minimum six months of food, backup energy, medical supplies, and just figure if all lights went out and 
stores weren't available, can you survive four to six months? And in my case, the answer is yes. And after six months, I think if it's that bad, I might be on foot anyway and not be able to stay located where I am. But I'm kind of rambling now. But we can pick this up on a part two. But yeah, it's interesting sure. to get your thoughts on when we do a part two on how you and I are different. Why do you think you and I are different than the vast majority? Have the vast majority been hypnotized, programmed subconsciously through television, Hollywood, and other sources? And uh, will man ever be able to, to solve his own problems or will it have to be something non-human, maybe at a level of a God, divine, or source? Uh, th that's be interesting to get your thoughts and have that extension, that conversation extending today's interview yeah i would be happy to to come back i've enjoyed this conversation yeah it's great because uh you're you're very easy to talk to you're very mellow uh, you don't stutter or stammer you've got a in interesting story and especially now what you're doing with your regenerative farming and you're building the community you're actually doing something uh, uh, right along with me and we're, we're close enough that we have arrangements where we're going to be staying in touch about every three months. We've made that arrangement yeah. and that that'll be crucial while we can, while we have access to diesel fuel or mm -hmm. uh, being able to drive on the interstate to go from my state to your state. As long as we can travel in the Midwest, we're going to do that because we're still close enough that my community and you, your community can barter and help one another out. And that was the key. I'd always pictured I'll be able to help in the Midwest, the, the East Coast and West Coast. Uh, forget it's too far. Not that I don't care about those people. It's just too far. But my air and surface and water technologies, I definitely plan on helping Midwest communities. That's why I'm located here. And if I can get yeah. somewhere, my strategy, uh, Ronan, was if I get somewhere within an eight hour drive, that's feasible. And you and I certainly are within that. Yeah eight hours. Yeah. So basically if you draw eight hours from where I'm located and, mm -hmm. and I'm near, I'm near Missouri and Kansas uh, area, eight hours from that, that's the community I'm going to help with my technologies. And as a research scientist, like on Gilligan's Island, the professor, I'm preparing for a shift in society. I'm preparing for major interruption, a major reality shift. I see it coming and I'm ready for it to the best of my ability. And I left academia a long time ago. I left patent applications and white papers. That was not the route to go. And I did this because of people like you and Heinz and others that we're now meeting and we're forming a community because we're going to have each other's back. And, and when you find individuals that are uh, spiritual, they're moral, honest with their word, not deceitful. That's that's huge. And if you can find four, seven, ten of those individuals, that's golden. That to me is worth more than any stock market portfolio. Good, honest, genuine people that are spiritual, kind, trustworthy. Yeah, I think where we're heading, people need to be more concerned about force multiplying. And to me, that is varying skill sets that overlap and expand on one another uh, in these communities. And I think when we do a part two, we can talk about uh, 
Okay. You know, how, how I see force multiplying and, uh, you know, a lot of how we did teams in the military, you know, you have special teams with different skill sets, uh, and you know, how you need to cross train and, you know, it's fun too. You can have fun with, uh, with these community, uh, experiences. And, uh, the other thing I'd like to talk about in part two was some of the things that, uh, not necessarily that were discussed at the retreat, but some of my takeaways from your retreat, uh, cause it truly was, uh, life-changing. I, I'm making notes here so that when we have part two, I know what to reference. I, I was, I'll show you here on the screen. I got a whole page of notes <laughs> from, so I'm, I'm good. But yeah, they, I told people, I, they probably think that it's a marketing ploy. I, I am, I was dead serious when I said, and, and the retreats are only at most nine to 10 people. So mm -hmm. uh, I told that this would be life changing because the the very uh, intimate small group, but the knowledge that I shared is not available in universities. It's not on YouTube. It's, there's no series of books that you can read. And this is trustworthy information that once you got it as a group, I knew you would go home. You wouldn't forget about what was discussed and you would see the world with a different lens, the lens that I've seen it and just a handful of scientists around the world that aren't part of this plastic and leather world. And I knew it would work. And then your, yeah. confirm, your confirmation, you're not paid to say this or anything, but all of you that were there say the exact same thing. And I haven't coached you. We haven't rehearsed this. No, this, no this, I mean, we, we, we text each other and everything. I mean, I was, I was talking to Sasquatch dad, today with Heinz on a, on our own zoom call. Yeah. And, uh, so it's, it some, some great bonds were made there. That's right. Uh, and I, and remember I said that in these retreats, when you're in a retreat, you'll become family. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's a new, everyone that was in that retreat that, that I had, they're like a family now. So everyone's in contact with one another. Uh, Sasquatch dad is also within that eight hour range of you. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's also one where every three months where we have reunions, that's because we're, we're like family and you need that kinship. You need that bond. You need that closeness because of what's coming globally. And yeah. uh, I'm, I'm glad that we're part of it. And there's another retreat coming up the December, January, that holiday season. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of people have off work, and, but hopefully uh, that group also, everyone uh, shows up and that'll another, that'll be another second retreat where they also become a family and have a support group. And I would love to be able to have four a year, like one every season, fall. Yeah, that would be really spring, cool. Summer. If, if, I, yeah. if I could do that and we're allowed to travel so what is that one every three months the four yeah. would yep. be perfect so that'd be about 40 people a year but you, yeah, you know i think I, that's a good number but, but it's like pulling teeth because there are a lot of people that are oh i love that but i can't get off work 
I got, well, th there's all these excuses. Of course, you, you have to really put your mind to it to, to take the three days. You know, if it's a day's journey to get there, four to four to five days there and back, how, how bad do you want it? How bad do you want this life-changing information and looking at the world with a new lens and, and having a new family established? And I don't think people want it bad enough to where they come up with excuses or life gets in the way and they'll never come to the retreat, but they sure wish they could be there or could they, could yeah. they get a video version? Video version is not going to be the same. As it it won't be the same. That. won't be the same. No. So I'm like, oh, I, you know, Ronan, it's like, what, what do you tell people that if you can't <laughs> It's passive arrange, activism. <laughs> yeah, there you go. They're not willing to take the leap. No. It, it's never easy. It's not easy to get away from life for three days to go to an unknown. Uh, it's all unknown. I didn't know what we were going to go over. I didn't, I didn't know who I was even meeting. I'd never, this is the first time I've ever met people, a group of people who I'd never met in real, in person, you know, over the internet. That, that, that's a gamble, but you know, the juice to me was worth the squeeze and I am so glad that I did it and people need to get off the fence. You know, you, you have to start taking action now and getting out of your comfort zone is part of that and branching out, meeting like-minded people and having uh, incredibly in-depth conversation. And, you know, you going over your material is, it's a mind bender. I still want to see the the recording so that I, I wasn't able to take notes fast enough. <laughs> yeah. And of course you'll get everyone that attends, will get that MP4 file uh, yeah. so that you have it for reference. But yeah, everyone that attends, that's uh, part of it. And the the four hundred dollar fee, I, I don't make a, I don't make money on it. I think I made like three, three, three to four hundred dollars. But by the time every, all the expenses are paid, it's and then the water. Everyone was able to take the structured mm -hmm. energized water home. In some cases, the one couple uh, took enough water home with them. They were two hundred dollars plus. Right. So they, they, actually, they actually went home making money because they took the, the, the water. Right. So if you add that, it's really, it costs you nothing, but arranging your schedule, the three days and then a day or so to get there and back. But that, that's enough of the sales pitch on this episode. I didn't want to turn it to a <laughs> sales pitch. So we'll, uh, we'll, we'll end uh, this interview here. We'll definitely have you for the second one. And then uh, we'll talk uh, on the side and see if, Maybe Heinz is up to it. If, if you ever want to hop on the ethereal underground or not, I'm not going to pressure him, but you see oh, him I'm sure every day. Is. You could ask him. He'll ask you probably how it went uh, tonight on ethereal underground. Maybe he'll want to uh, hop on and be a guest on the show and get his perspective. That'd be kind of neat. But if he doesn't want to, I'm not going to force him. And uh, you'd be safe on your way home. It's getting kind of dark for you and me. Do you have a lot of deer? out there did you have to worry about uh yeah we've got uh we've got pretty big deer out here corn fed deer is what you know a lot of people refer to them as um, for deer. so <laughs> yeah yeah so you gotta you gotta really be mindful and uh i am in a a, a big alley right now especially after harvest you know once yep. once they start harvesting fields 
the deer really move, but it's not cold right now. So when it's not cold, the deer can kind of bed down and hang out until it's dark. Uh, it isn't until it gets cold where they got to stay moving to stay alive that it gets real dangerous. Yeah, I think in my area, I, I swear the, the auto body shops raise deer <laughs> and they let them. I've, t I've totaled more vehicles hitting deer on the highway. And of course, the deer were okay, by the way, for animal. I've totaled a uh, couple vehicles and the deer just kind of sniffed a little bit and ran off and my car's totaled on the side of the highway and I've had to f fix it, but it's, they're everywhere where I am. So at night I drive like a little old man, I'm doing 50, no more than 55 miles an hour on the highway. Cause I'm so paranoid of yeah. wrecking the car again with these deer and all they do is get bruised and my car <laughs> totaled on, on, on the highway. But, uh, this time of night, cause we're in the same time zone that, and I know you're going to be heading out just like me, the heads. I just wanted you to be careful. I'm going to be careful too. watch out for the deer. Anyone driving, do. especially in the Midwest, uh, this time of year between five and 6 PM. Ugh, they're like everywhere. All right. Well, thanks, uh, Ronan. Appreciate you being on ethereal underground. We'll, uh, we'll schedule. I think what'll happen. We'll stay in touch. Cause we, we do uh, on the side anyway, discord and we have other discussions, but I'll see what your schedule's like uh, first or second week of December. Okay. Yeah. Cause I'm going to, I'm going to have a couple others back three of them back. So it'd be like maybe in four weeks or so, which would put us second week of December, something like that. But anyway, we'll, we'll get in touch and we'll have you on at that time. All right. Well, thank you very much. All right. Take care.